Welcome to the York Story Slam podcast, where we feature select stories from our monthly open mic storytelling events in York, Pennsylvania. On June 20th, eight storytellers share their stories with our audience at Archetype Pizza in downtown York. The theme of our June Story Slam was summer love. We heard stories about connections that spanned decades, the risks in putting yourself out there, and what happens when you don't close the curtains. In the end, our winner was Mina, who shared her story about feeling her brother's presence and love even after he had passed. Summer. It's that time that nostalgia comes back for all those good times when you were growing up. Spending time out in the sunshine and running and playing. I remember that my older brother Charles and my younger brother Clark and I used to run rampant in the summer and do everything we wanted to do. We lived in our teen years in a uh, 20 acre spread in Severna Park, Maryland, right on Benfield Road, and the land went all the way back to the Severn River. And we would climb trees and run and jump over logs, build forts, play in the creek down at the end of the ravine, and stand at the bluff underneath the oak tree and watch the sailboats going down the Severn River. Now, both of my brothers and my father have passed away from polycystic kidney disease. And several years after my older brother Charles passed, I decided I was going to take a trip down to the old homestead. Well, driving down Benfield Road, it did not look the same as it did when I was a kid. The old house was gone, obviously, and on that 20 acres of property, there must have been 30 McMansions. And I, I found the way, drove into the uh, suburbs there, into the houses, and the name of the street I was on was Rivendell Road. And then there was Rivendell Court. And if you know, you know. And if you don't, you need to read Tolkien. I drove around, and in the cul-de-sac, down in the bottom, I could see where the ravine was and where the stream was going through. So I parked the car, and I walked down. And I was amazed someone had built a boardwalk over top of the creek, running all the way down to the river. So I began walking down the boardwalk and looking around and seeing if I could see things that reminded me of when I grew up. And I looked up on the bluff, and there was that oak tree, and underneath the oak stood a deer, absolutely beautiful. And he kind of shook his head at me, and I kind of waved, and I kept walking down the boardwalk. And I sat on the dock by the bay, watching their tides roll away <laughs> for about an hour, thinking about my life growing up. And as I was coming back up the boardwalk in a patch of sunlight in a field of wildflowers lay the deer. And he was absolutely gorgeous. His antlers were in full velvet, and his eyes were like deep pools you could dive into. And he looked at me, and he looked deep into me. And I started talking to him about 
you know, this is where I grew up, and this is where, you know, my brothers and I played, and this is where we did this, and this is where we did that. And he'd shake his head, or he'd kind of look at me odd, turn his head one way or the other. And I was beginning to get this feeling. And I said to him, I said, do I know you? And he got up and walked away. I was so disappointed that I had broken that magic spell that I was under. So I walked on around the boardwalk, and as I came around a corner, there he stood with his head through one of the grapevine swings, and he hit it with his nose, and he hit it again, and he hit it again, and I burst into tears because I knew at that moment that was my brother Charles telling me he loved me and that it was going to be okay and that he was okay. And I began talking with him about the good times when we were growing up, because there were some bad times, but there were also some really wonderful times that I shared with my siblings. And I started pulling ivy off of the tree, and I made it into a crown like we did when we were kids. And we talked, and as the sun was going down, he kind of shook his head and turned and walked away. And I needed that gift. I needed that special summer day when I would know the love of my family in a way I'd never understood before. And that memory is a part of me now, just like the memories of being out and running in the fields and in the woods. And that crown, that ivy is now growing in my backyard. Mina earned a spot in our Grand Slam in November. Our second story comes from John with his story about his fourth grade classmate, Debbie, and a moment of kindness he never got to repay. This is way back in fourth grade, yet I can still see her poised at the edge of the school parking lot with that enigmatic half smile, watching us with those big eyes. That's what she did a lot of, watching. It would be a, a typical end of a fourth grade school day and Gary's mom would be late again, so me, Gary, Bobby, and their cousin Jeannie, we'd be playing tag in the parking lot, chasing each other in and out between the parked cars. We'd be out there running around like maniacs, but I'd be conscious of her the entire time, calmly standing apart, surveying our movements. She, she was different than other fourth graders. She possessed a sort of quiet dignity and an incomprehensible joy in everything that was extremely ordinary. But it was her braces and crutches that defined her. She'd always be leaning forward on her crutches with her shoulders hunched, hips jutted to the right, her body buttressed with its heavy metal scaffolding. Debbie Quinn. She was a kid in our class who had polio. Uh, back in those days, there was one in nearly every class. She was tall, thin, quiet, and I never really saw beyond the crutches notice how pretty she was. Eyes huge and radiant, softly apprising the bustling nonsense around her, that captivating half-smile, and a, a grace that far outshined any difficulty she had walking. I never really talked to her at all. In fourth grade, I didn't really see a reason to talk to girls that much. But, <laughs> but neither did I make an effort to carry her books or assist her going up the stairs or spend a moment with her on the playground as she watched while the other girls jump rope 
ran around screaming or did what other senseless things the fourth grade girls would do at lunchtime. But then she was so self-sufficient and assured. She'd pack her books and her lunch in a plaid book bag that she wore on her back, strapped with a cord diagonally across her chest, never in need of assistance or company, seemingly so composed and content in her isolation. Well, one afternoon, towards the end of the fourth grade school year, Sister Marie marched our class out to the playing fields to engage us in a softball game. We had seen Sister hit a softball one time on the playground. She was really good, kind of like Mickey Mantle in a nun habit. <laughs> but me and my buddies, or several of my buddies, we decided we weren't going to play. And instead, we commenced a chicken fight out on the outfield. Uh, Tommy Qualls rolled on my shoulders, and we continually attacked our opponents, knocking each other to the ground. So we were out there acting like idiots, and that apparently teed off Sister Marie. She stood there at home plate, and she heaved that softball in the center field like 70 miles per hour, and it hit me smack on the head, sending me flying 10 feet. As I lay there stunned, I could hear my compatriots scattering, leaving me to my fate, and I could also hear Sister's heavy, pounding footsteps drawing near as she approached to finish me off. But then, when I opened my eyes, it was Debbie Quinn leaning over me with her big eyes and look of concern, asking, are you okay? In the face of a rampaging Sister Marie, only Debbie Quinn had the compassion and courage to come to my rescue. I didn't have time that school year, but I vowed then and there that next school year, I would talk to Debbie Quinn. I'd ask her every once in a while how she was doing and when she was going to get her braces off or maybe offer her one of my lunch Twinkies or ask her if she thought Sister Marie kind of looked like Hoss Cartwright. <laughs> well, the school year ended, and I spent that entire summer anxiously awaiting for school to start up again in the fall so I could see Debbie Quinn again and redeem myself. And I was well aware of how weird that was, spending a summer wanting to go back to school, but that's one of the crazy, incomprehensible things love will do to you. I wouldn't admit it, but I was now in love with Debbie Quinn, as much as a dopey, crew-cut kid could be in love in the summer before he started fifth grade. Well, in September, school started up again. But Debbie Quinn, she was no longer in class, no longer in school. Nobody seemed to know what happened to her or was even curious about what happened to her. I asked everybody, and nobody knew. I thought about her that entire year and how crappy it was I hadn't even offered her half of a lunch Twinkie. That was the first time I ever felt guilty as a kid. I had a chance, I had a couple of years worth of chances to be nice to somebody, nice to a nice person, to, to a person who more than anybody deserved to be treated nice, and I blew it. You know, guilt is the beginning of the end of childhood. The way I felt then that entire year was a prelude to be what being an adult is all about, living a life fraught with guilt, regret, longing, empathy, all that stuff that the self-centeredness of childhood forms a protective barrier against, but only for so long. I never saw Debbie Quinn again, but even though it's been over 60 years now, I still think of her now and again trudging about with those heavily armored legs, forever in my mind, the personification of childhood innocence, beauty, 
and grace. Our final story on this month's podcast comes from Debbie, who shared her story about moving from friends to something more and all the awkward and sweet moments in between. I think I'm unlovable. Those were the words that I said when I was slouched in a chair in a counselor's office um, as I was ending my second lifetime relationship. And so I had my counseling session and went on with my life as we do um, and spent two years of my life single, um, found a lot of joy in that, did some healing, um, and wondered if I would ever be in a relationship again. And so some of my friends were telling me that I should, I don't know, get like on an online dating thing, and I just thought nothing could be grosser than that. Like I just couldn't even bear the thought, no judgment on people that do, but for me, I was just like, I just can't. I couldn't even imagine it. I couldn't really imagine dating. I was 50 years old. I, my children had just grown and left the house. I had become a, gr a grandmother, and I just, I, I don't know, I couldn't even think about how, how to even venture into that world. And so most of the time, I just thought, it's fine being single. I hadn't been single in my adult life. I clearly needed to sort some things out and figure some things out about myself. Um, and so I thought, you know, sometime maybe I'll just meet someone and it'll, I don't know, just kind of happen. And so one day, I met um, a woman at an event. I was uh, working for Planned Parenthood at the time. I had started an LGBT youth group. Um, and so I did a lot of tabling at events to share information about the group. Um, and I was at an event like that. And a woman came up to gather information. She was at a table with PFLAG. And she was kind of walking around and gathering information. And she said that she had um, recently come out, left her um, marriage that she had been in for a long time, and was originally from Baltimore, came to York, um, actually with her husband and her family, came out in that time. Um, and had separated and was just looking for support, went to PFLAG for support and was just kind of trying to meet people. And I was like, I know people. Like, I'm your person, I know people. And so I'll let you know. And so she wrote her email down on a piece of paper, which she later denied, but I had it in her handwriting. And I said, you were after me. But at the time, it was all very innocent and she just gave me her name. And so I was like, oh, you know, there's a cookout. There's like a women's cookout. And so she said, okay, I wanna come there. And so we met there. And my friend who was hosting the cookout was like, oh, how long have you two been together? And I was like, yeah, we're not. Like, we just met. You know, I just told her I know people and she's just here. And so really the whole summer went like that. We spent a lot of time together. There were a lot of things happening and I would invite her and we would go um, and, and we were friends and we spent time together um, and yeah, and just build a friendship. Um, and so eventually I started to, to feel like I had feelings for her, but again, like I just didn't know what to do with it. I could not imagine in a million years how I would flirt with someone. Like I had nothing, like nothing. And so I had a couple of really reliable sources of support. So my son, I was just like, I don't know, I think I like somebody. And uh, so he came with us. We went to Baltimore to watch it, to this big like arts festival. And we're like sitting on this hill, we're listening to live music and I'm texting him. I'm like, she's pretty nice, right? And he texts me back. And he's like, yeah, she's chillaxed. And so <laughs> the next day I check with him. He's like, mom, I didn't, I didn't get any signals. 
And I was like, yeah, I'm not getting signals either, you're right. And then a young woman that I helped raise that was living at the house for a while, we sat on the balcony and smoked, and I was like, oh, I think I really like her. She's like, so you should get her drunk. <laughs> I said, it's an idea, but you know, the problem is I drink a lot and she doesn't, so then I'll just be sloppy. <laughs> She'll just be like, so anyway, so I'm trying to sort it out. One time, I thought I gave out a pretty strong cue where, like I said, these things just kept coming up, so we just kept doing things together, and then there was nothing. And so we were talking on the phone, and I said, when will I see you again? Now, I think everyone in this room would agree that's a signal, right? How, does anybody think that's not a signal? Not a signal. <laughs> She missed it, completely missed it. We still talk about that sometimes. She's like, no, I didn't get it. I was like, I really felt like I was putting myself out on the limb then. But she was just like, well, when do you want to get together again? And so I invited her to the house for dinner. And I'm telling you, I don't cook for anybody. But I cooked. We had a meal together. It was very nice. And being a grown person, I did. I just kept picturing myself like, you can just tell her. Like, just use your words, as I say to my children, like, as, even as grown-ups. Just tell her, and I would picture myself just telling her, right? In a very guarded way, very protected. Like, I sort of like you, but it's okay if you don't like me, and life will go on. You know what I mean? Like, and, but when I was with her, like, I just couldn't get myself to do it. So we had dinner together. There was even a bat in the house. I mean, I pulled out all the stuffs, right? <laughs> Which she still says that I ran out in the house and left her. But I, again, I was sort of like, we acknowledge there's a bat in the room we're in. There's a door in the room we're in. You run out the door. Like, I don't know what's complicated about that. She's like, but you left me. And I was like, I figured you would run out behind me. But anyway. So that night when we were having dinner together, I knew that her phone had gone dead. And so after she left, now I have to tell the ending really fast. OK, so after she left, I thought, this is my chance. Her phone is dead, so I call her. And I leave a message, and I say, Maria, I'm really enjoying the time that we're spending together. And I was just wondering, wait, how does, I said, I really enjoy the time we've been spending together. And I feel really stupid because I couldn't say this to your face when you were here. Nevertheless, I was wondering if you'd like to date me because I'm just smooth like that. <laughs> and she did not answer me. Like, the whole night, I couldn't sleep. I kept watching my phone because I knew she was going home. She'd plug her phone in, and then she had to get up super early to give her daughter a ride to work. And I'm like, she just held out for a long time. But then she texted me, and she said, yes, yes, yes. And later, she played that message back to me, and I said, I used the word nevertheless in a voicemail, and you still said yes? Like, I can't believe it. And we've been together 10 years. <laughs> All the winners from this year's Open Mic Story Slam events will return at the end of the season to compete for the title of Best Storyteller in York at our Grand Slam. Updates on our events are available on our website, yorkstorieslam.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also follow us on Twitter at at YorkStorySlam, as well as on Facebook. And watch videos of all the stories from our events on our YouTube channel, we hope to see you on stage soon. Thanks for listening. This Story Slam podcast is produced by Catherine Roquet. Theme music composed and performed by David Wilson.